My daughter started talking about Mr. Mugi on her fourth birthday. My brother and I lived across the street from one another and we held the party at his house since he could afford a pool and I couldn't. That day, the shift was indicated by a small tug on the skirt. I turned to see the beautiful hazel eyes of Melissa, my daughter, staring up at me. Mommy, Mr. Mookie wants to come home with us. I knelt down to get on her level. Who's that, baby? She looked around, as if searching for someone. He's my new friend. I don't see him, though. He must have gone to grab his coat. I realized then that my little baby had her first imaginary friend. I nodded enthusiastically. Of course he can. Mr. Moogie is more than welcome in our home whenever he wants. I thought nothing of Mr. Moogie, really. Although, things around the house were strange after that, and a lot of it had to do with Mr. Moogie. She insisted on having her window open every night, and Mr. Moogie never seemed to want to be in the room with me. Every time I'd ask her where he was, she'd say something like, He went home for the day, or he decided to go for a walk around the block. I once jokingly asked if he didn't like me. She looked at me, hurt. Oh no, mommy. Mr. Moogie loves you a whole bunch. He just gets shy. This went on for a year. The only problem was, the more time went on, the more immersed she became in Mr. Moogie. She changed a lot of parts of her personality, which she said was something Moogie wanted for her. My emotions were mixed, worry and frustration. She would spend so much time by herself, opting to shut herself away in her bedroom with him, rather than go spend her time outside. She refused certain things she used to love, and it was difficult to get her to even go to the store with me. I'd try to take her to her dad's on weekends, but if I could even get her there without her throwing an enormous fit, I'd get a call within a few hours from my ex-husband, absolutely insisting that I pick her up. She was out of control at that point. She trashed his house on several occasions before he finally threw his hands up and yelled, God damn it, Mary, take her fucking kid and get out of my life. She held her head in shame, as I explained, while trying to contain my sheer anger, that what she did was entirely wrong. She just kept saying, Mr. Moogie said it was the only way I could stay with you. I felt fed up, but I was more worried. I wanted to badly take her to the doctor, but the divorce left us broke and without insurance. Silently, I hoped she would grow out of it. One morning, I woke up to find that Melissa was fully dressed. Most of the time, she would opt for pajamas. What's the special occasion? I asked, treading lightly as possible. She had never flipped out and trashed our house, but I still found myself afraid of my own child. Mr. Moogie wants to play outside today. I nodded 
relieved that she was going to be outside instead of locked away. I decided that I'd do the dishes so I could stay inside and still watch her playing in the yard. I couldn't have looked away more than a few minutes, but when I looked back, she was gone. Running outside, I screamed her name, but got no reply. I called the police immediately, and a search was started. Every hour that passed, I prayed to a God that I didn't fully believe in. I prayed for my daughter's safety. I prayed that this was just one of the many odd but harmless occurrences. Hours turned into days, then weeks, months. Half a year had gone by, and there was no sign of Melissa. At 2.37 a.m., on an abnormally warm October night, a call came into the station from a man claiming to have seen someone carrying a body through his backyard. The police caught him in the act. Older man, probably in his 40s, thick glasses, lanky body. Nothing at all special about him other than the fact that the body he was trying to bury was that of my little Melissa. I'm sure you don't want to hear the gory details and I'm not willing to relive them. She had been abused and disgusting in human ways for the entirety of the six months she had been gone. She was so thin and bruised, she was barely recognizable. I was asked down to the station and had my brother accompany me. They wanted to see if I could recognize the guy. My brother grasped my hand tightly, likely fighting back tears himself, as we stared at this strange man from behind weird mirror glass. It all felt like a bad episode of SVU. Detective Lorenzo stared with sympathy in his eyes. Do you know this man? I shook my head. No, I've never seen him in my life. My brother looked at me with confusion. What are you talking about? Don't lie to them, Mary. My head was so foggy. It took a few moments for me to realize what was said and reply. "Uh, No, I've never seen him. He looked a bit angry with me then. Are you shitting me? He was in and out of your fucking house for the past, what, a year? That was the tipping point. Later, I sat at a metal table across from Detective Lorenzo. His tone had changed from sympathetic to accusatory. How do you know Thomas Mooney? He pushed a photo of the man that killed my daughter across the table. I shook my head, almost too bewildered to speak. I don't know that man. He stood quickly, slamming his hands on the table. Yeah, this definitely seemed like a bad episode of SVU. He was in your house. People saw him walking everywhere with you and your daughter. Your own brother saw the man come in and out of the house. I think that's when I made the connection. Mooney. Mooney. 
Mugi, Mugi. There was no way. Mr. Mugi was imaginary. It was not possible that a man could have avoided me, been in my home with my child for a year. Yet, the evidence was there. The neighborhood watch had surveillance cameras installed a few years before we moved in. The footage showed Thomas Mooney, a man I never met until I saw him in that interrogation room, crawling through the windows of my home, mostly Melissa's bedroom window. Hell, he even came and went through the front door several times. They asked a few people around the community if they ever saw him. Most of them nodded solemnly. They all assumed that he was a relative or a family friend. He'd always follow at a distance, and I never thought to look over my shoulder. I never saw him. I never fucking saw him. Not once. A week or so before my 10th birthday, I walked to the corner store with a $5 bill and picked up a jar of ragu for my mom. On my way home, a man I'd never seen before fell in step with me and began talking. Hi, he said cheerfully. My name is Dr. Ramsey. I'm a pediatrician. Do you know what a pediatrician is? I walked along silently, not replying and fervently hoping he'd take that as a sign he should leave me alone. Subtleties were not his strong suit, though, because he kept right on chattering. Are your parents looking for a pediatrician for you? Of course, you're almost a big girl now. You'll be needing another kind of doctor soon, won't you? That's okay, though. They can still bring you to me until then. What's your name? You have beautiful hair. I was just on my way to get some suckers for the candy jar in my office. Do you like suckers? Thankfully, we were nearing my house, so I ran forward up the back steps and through the kitchen door. I didn't know it then, but that was the beginning of a very long, very scary ordeal. It didn't take long after that for Dr. Ramsey to begin showing up. At first, it seemed benign enough, at least to a kid. He would drive by nearly every day, smiling and waving. I told my mom, who said maybe it was on his way home from work, but then the phone calls began. My dad called me into the living room and sat me down. He asked about the day Dr. Ramsey followed me home and if I talked to him. He said I wasn't in trouble, but that I needed to tell him the truth. I told him no, and he asked if I was sure. Could I be forgetting something? I told him no again, and he frowned, then asked, Then how does he know your name? I didn't know. It turns out that was not all he knew. He knew my sister's name as well. Pretty soon, neither my sister or I were allowed to answer the phone. He called several times a day. At first... Neither of us knew what he was saying. Then one night, one of my brothers told us that he was telling my parents that he was going to hurt me. And later my sister. Things got complicated after that. My dad had called the police, but as this was before there were any stalking laws, there was not a lot that they could do. They told my parents to call back if he tried anything. My dad then called a friend of his from back in the day who happened to be a cop. For the next month, my dad's friend escorted me to and from school. Suddenly, life as I knew it came screeching to a halt. I couldn't walk to school alone. I couldn't play outside. I couldn't walk to Super America. Sort of like a 7-Eleven for those who don't know. 
When access to me was completely denied, things escalated. It was around this time he began threatening my sister as well. Then one afternoon, my sister, two of my brothers, my mom and I were in the kitchen. One of my brothers saw a glimpse of someone in the garage. They'd seen him too. Dr. Ramsey came bolting out of the garage, my brothers chasing after him. They ran all the way to Cherokee Park, where he lost them in the trees. My parents called the police again, but nothing came of it. The only information they had was a description and a name that was almost certainly fake. A couple of weeks later, we woke to find our dog hanging from the side porch. She was a gorgeous saddleback German Shepherd, born the same day I was. We were all devastated. The cops said there was no evidence it was him and ruled it accidental, but none of us believed that. His phone calls became more informative in the meantime. He would talk about who was home and who wasn't. If my brother would say my dad was home, he would tell him who was really in the house. He would also talk about the house itself, about the window and the kitchen he could easily open with a knife from the outside even when it was locked, and about the French doors that connected the living room to the side porch and how the lock could be finagled from the outside if you jiggled it just right. That night, my dad put in some carpenter nails at the bottom of the French doors until he could get a new lock ordered. My parents had to go to a company event for my dad's work. My older brothers were at St. West's roller skating rink. My sister was on the phone with her best friend. My little brother was on the floor asleep. I was watching Devo on the midnight special with Wolf and Jack. It was late. Suddenly, the top of the French door swung inward, and in the few milliseconds before the nails in the bottom caused them to snap back, I could see his silhouette. My sister whipped the phone at the television, and we ran up the stairs. About halfway up, we realized our little brother was still asleep on the living room floor. As quietly as we could, we slipped back down the stairs to go get him. We all went into our bedroom and didn't turn on the light. This way, we could see outside. We watched out the window for a while, and when we didn't find him, we crept down the hall to our brother's room to look. We looked down and could see someone standing at the back door. He knocked loudly. What do you want? My sister asked out the window. He stepped back and said, Is this the Mercy residence? I have a pizza for delivery. Can you come to the door? She scoffed at him, declaring she was not stupid. She could see he didn't have a pizza, and she was calling the cops. He left. A short while later, my brothers returned home. We told them what had happened, and they walked around the yard watching for him. They came back in, and things settled down. By now, we'd pretty much given up calling the cops because it never helped, so we just went back in. Each of us, except my youngest brother, still asleep, carrying a knife from the kitchen, just in case. Eventually, one of my brothers went into the kitchen to get a bowl of cereal as a snack. You know that sensation you get when you can just feel someone watching you? Yeah, he had that in spades. He kept looking around the kitchen, through the doorway, into the dining room, at the windows. He didn't see anything, but he could still feel eyes on him. So he went closer to the door to try to see better. The kitchen lights were reflecting on the windows of the door. It had three rows of three windows, so he still couldn't see. He stepped closer, then closer again, until he was right up to the door. 
then cupped his hands on either side of his head so he could see. There on the other side of the window pane was Dr. Ramsey, smiling back at him. He turned to yell for my older brothers, and when he looked back again, he was gone. They went out again to look for him, but didn't see him. The next night, we were at the table playing Crazy Eights, and my brother was restless. My sister asked him what's wrong, and he said he always felt like any minute now there would be a boom, boom, boom on the door or window. Almost immediately after he finished his sentence, boom, boom, boom on the window right behind him. In the chaos, the two eldest ran out, but he was already gone. A couple of weeks later, I was at school, and we were outside on the playground during recess. I was swinging upside down when I saw that now-familiar blue Ford Galaxy cruising by, moving slowly. And there he was, smiling and waving. He called my name, and I ran to the teacher and told her. The school had been told all about him, and she took me inside right away and called my mom. That same day, my mom had gotten a call from the school office asking her to verify that my dad was picking me up, as he'd called to say he was on his way. He wasn't. Not long after that, I woke up one night thirsty. I went down to the kitchen for a drink, and there, sitting alone in the dark, was my dad. On the table, a gun. He was tired of the police waiting until Dr. Ramsey tried something. He was tired of his children being terrorized. He was tired of being afraid every time he left for work that something would happen to us while he was gone. I sat with him for a time, watching, before he sent me back to bed. These events, and many more, took place over a period of around 18 months. Then, as suddenly as it began, it was over. He had vanished from our lives, the phone calls, the drive-by with the creepy waves, everything. For a long time, during and after the Dr. Ramsey days, I would have a recurring nightmare in which I would wake up to find him standing over me as I slept. It took a long time before I felt like a kid again. I found out years later that when he was calling, Dr. Ramsey would tell my parents that he was going to rape and kill me, and later my sister, and that there was nothing they could do about it. I don't know what happened to him when he disappeared. I don't know if he was in a car wreck, locked in prison, in a coma. But sometimes I wonder if the wait ended for my dad when he was sitting in the darkened kitchen one night. I don't know. And I'm not sure I want to. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial. Plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. I have nightmares where I'm trapped in a shower. The drain is plugged and the water won't stop pouring down on me. Water rises to my ankles, to my waist, and then over my head. The shower curtain turns to glass and my screams turn to gargles. A dark figure presses its face against the glass on the other side, and it watches me. I plead, but it won't let me out. I swallow water, 
and flail helplessly in my glass coffin. I wake up gagging. I know where this nightmare came from. I never have to dig deep. The incident is never far from my subconscious. Finding it is easy. Getting over it is not. It was the summer of my 12th birthday when the Hudsons moved in across the street. Three people, one of them a really old woman. She was tiny, frail, skeletal almost. Thin white hair, faded, blue flower dress. Her head hung from her neck and it wobbled as the man pushed her up a makeshift wheelchair ramp into the house. At the time, I couldn't figure out if she was alive or dead. A few minutes later, she appeared in an upstairs window, sitting in her wheelchair. She was directly facing my bedroom, and I cautiously peered out from behind my curtains. Her head was up right now, and she stared at me, just stared without moving her head an inch. I closed my drapes. For days, she sat at the window. She watched the cars putter down our suburban road and gazed at the neighborhood kids walking through their yards. I never saw anyone else in the room, never saw her move from that wheelchair. At night, I'd nervously peek through the crack in my drapes. Her silhouette was still in that window, lights off, staring out into the darkness at my bedroom. I couldn't tell, but I knew she was watching me. The stories about her cropped up pretty quick amongst my friends in the neighborhood. That she was a witch, that she was just a doll, that she was actually dead. But I knew she wasn't dead. Sure, I never saw her move from that window, not once, and I never saw her head turn. But I felt her eyes move as they studied me. I could feel her watching me. All alone in my bedroom, in the middle of the night with my drapes firmly shut, I'd wake up and shudder. Her eyes were on me. I just knew it. I began sleeping on the floor. The lower I was, the better. Maybe she couldn't see me if I was on the floor. I told my parents that the old woman across the street was creeping me out. I pleaded with them to talk to the Hudsons and ask them to move her to a room without a window. They laughed and told me to let her live out her twilight years in peace. She was just watching the street, they said, and that probably made her feel happy and feel younger. Are you just gonna stick me in a windowless room when I'm an old lady? My mom laughed. Remind me to move in with your sister when I'm in a wheelchair. A week later, there was some commotion at the Hudson's. I watched from my bedroom window as the man ran out of the house and opened up the double doors of his van. He jogged inside and he reappeared minutes later, pushing the old woman in her wheelchair down the ramp. She looked frailer than before. 
She couldn't have weighed more than 70 pounds. Her head was flung to the side, resting on her right shoulder. Her body jostled in the wheelchair, but her eyes never left me, watched me the whole time. The man picked her up and placed her in the car. He folded the wheelchair and stuffed it in the trunk. He quickly hopped into the driver's seat. The younger woman pounced into the passenger seat and the man put his foot to the pedal. The old woman's limp head still faced me. It bopped up and down as the van reversed down the driveway. I studied her face. It was expressionless, emotionless. Her tongue slightly hung from the right side of her mouth, but her eyes were on mine, and they stayed on me. The van accelerated down the street, and it was gone. My parents heard the news that afternoon from other neighbors. The old woman's condition was getting worse, and the Hudson's had taken her to some sort of home. She wouldn't be coming back. I went straight to my bedroom, and I looked across the street. I smiled. Her window was finally empty. The Hudson's didn't come back the next day. No van. That night, I looked out towards the old woman's window. There was no one there. No wheelchair. But the bedroom light was on. I remember telling my dad I thought it was strange, and he just shrugged and said, must be on some sort of timer or something. I woke up in the middle of the night and nervously peeked out of my bedroom window. That bedroom light was still on. It suddenly flicked off, and I ducked below my window frame. I slowly rose and looked out, expecting to see the silhouette of that tiny, skeletal being. I watched for ten minutes, pinching and straining my eyes. The lights quickly flickered on and then off again. I slept on the floor again, clutching my pillow close. I had a late baseball practice the next evening. When I got home, my house was empty. My parents were at my little sister's softball game. I headed to the shower to rinse off. About three minutes into my shower, I felt cold. The hot steam was escaping the bathroom somehow, which didn't make sense because I had to shut the door. I wiped the shampoo from my eyes, turned my head, and I heard a strange noise that would haunt me in nightmares for years. The metal rings of the shower curtain being dragged across the shower rod. Someone was slowly opening the curtain. The shampoo stung my eyes, and through the stinging, I saw a dark figure behind the curtain. Long, pale, bony fingers gripped the curtain as it slowly opened. I instinctively backed up in the shower, and the curtain opened completely. There stood the old woman. I must have only looked at her for one, maybe two seconds, but at that moment time stood still. All these years later, 
I can still draw you a vivid picture of the horrifying image in front of me. Disheveled white hair, crazy in her eyes, bones jutting out from under her stretched skin, stark naked. Blotchy skin, warts all over her body, skinny breast hanging to her waist, hair where I didn't know people grow hair. She smiled grotesquely, and I felt a shower tile against my back and the hot water pound my face. In her other hand, the old woman held a letter opener. August, she mumbled. August, August, August. I leaped past her, knocking her tiny body to the floor. I ran downstairs, naked and soaking wet. In my panic, I somehow remembered I was nude, and I yanked a pair of shorts out of the hamper in the laundry room, sending the hamper crashing to the floor. I hightailed it on foot down the street, eventually winding up at my friend's house. When the police arrived, they found the old woman crumpled to a heap in the bathroom. The shower was still running. The policemen were all really nice to me, admiring me for my bravery. I told them what she said to me, August, and asked if they knew what she could have meant. It will be August in a few days, one of them shrugged, and you can never fully understand old and crazy, son. The Hudsons only came to our street once more to retrieve their stuff. The for sale sign was up in days. My mom told me they couldn't face the neighbors for what happened. Apparently they had taken the old woman, the man's mother, to a special home downstate. Somehow, some way, the woman managed to escape the home and caught a bus back to our town. It never quite made sense to me. She was so old, so frail, so helpless. She could barely move those weeks she lived in that house. How had she managed to travel hundreds of miles on her own? Anyway, you can imagine what this did to me. I didn't shower for 21 years. I took baths, which I suppose aren't that different. It's still a tub, and it involves hot, soapy water. But a shower, with its closed curtain, water peppering the tub floor, and steam climbing the walls... You get lost inside your own head in the shower. Thoughts consume you, and it feels so utterly safe. For a few minutes, you are alone from the world, in your own private, misty kingdom. But that's what makes the shower dangerous. You're enclosed, vulnerable, naked. You're exposed. I talk to people about it. My parents, a shrink but mainly I tried to push the incident deep down into places where I couldn't find it. I didn't talk about it with anyone since I was a kid. Life carried on. Besides the baths, I was pretty normal. A few months ago, something inside me clicked. I felt the urge to re-examine the incident. It was almost like a voice in my head was telling me to do it. My head wanted closure. I spent hours online one night trying to track down any information on the Hudsons and the old woman. 
I finally found what I was looking for, an obituary for the old woman. She had died four years ago. Somehow, that walking skeleton hadn't checked out for another 15 years. The obituary photo was a black and white picture from when she was a young woman. It was a photo of her and her deceased husband on their wedding day. His name was August, and he looked exactly like me. I closed a browser and stared at the computer desktop for 10 minutes. It finally made more sense why she called me August, why she was obsessed with watching me. Maybe she used to write letters to her husband, and that's why she was clutching the letter opener that night. For a small moment, I felt a little better. Things always feel better when they make more sense. Honey, is everything okay? It was my wife. I think so, I said. I took the first shower I had taken in years that night. I didn't even jump when the curtain rungs dragged across the shower rod and my wife entered. But as she embraced me under the hot water, one question wouldn't leave my head. How come the young woman in that wedding photo looks exactly like my wife? On a rainy night in the era before cell phones, I was 18, walking a very long way home from work, and I foolishly accepted a ride home from a strange man. Small town girl living in a lonely world, and I had just gotten off a double shift. He was elderly, acted genuinely concerned for me, and I saw a Bible in the back seat. Probably safe, right? The car was old and broken down, and he had to get out to open the door for me. It took him a while as he had trouble walking with a bum leg. He told me the passenger door didn't open from the inside. I immediately felt weird, but years of nice girl training told me, he's gone to so much trouble, don't say no. We chatted for a while and he politely complimented my uniform, my hair, and told me I looked like his late wife and that her spirit must have led him to help me get home. It sounded very sweet the way he told it conversation turned to if I was still in school, what my hobbies were like, and gradually turned to whether or not I was on my period. Which was rude, but he acted like it was going to be the punchline of a joke, so I laughingly asked him why he would want to know. And he said very calmly, because if you're fertile, we should start trying for a family right away. (sighs) Oh, shit. He said that God had kept him lonely for years, but now, because I looked so much like his late wife, it was clear I was meant to be his, so he could start life over again, and finally have lots of children like his wife was unable to do. He grabbed my hand and kissed it and said, I can't wait to show you our new bed. I told him I forgot something at work. He told me I could get it tomorrow. I told him I needed to pee, and he said I could hold it until we got home. He wasn't going to let me out. He kept talking about how things were different back then, and how men are the head of the household, that 
women are to follow their fathers and then their husbands, and God says this and God says that. He talked about his wedding day, how his wife's father had given her to him. So I blurted out, You're going to get my father's permission to marry me before taking me to your home, right? God would want that, right? You need to do that. Because otherwise we would be living in sin and the marriage bed is not holy. Which I remembered from many, 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 many days of church sermons. He got offended then and said he knew the Bible better than I did. And of course he knew to ask my father for permission. I told him that we couldn't live together in sin and we should go to my house before going home. And I reminded him that the street wasn't far. Still trying to keep the conversation light and joking, I told him that's what a godly man would do. And he wholeheartedly agreed. Then we got to the street where I'd previously told him I lived. He asked which house was my parents. I gave him a fake house number far from mine and had him drop me there. He wanted to come inside. I told him I needed to let my parents know about God sending me a husband before he could meet them. I said it would take a few days. Come back tomorrow. He said, I'll give you a few minutes, but then we need to be on our way. I told him to drive around the block so I could have time to pack my clothes. He nodded and finally opened the car door. I ran to that house's door, waved to him until he drove away and then sprinted to my house where I lived alone. Double bolted my door and put the couch in front of it that night. Never saw him again. I did not call the police, though I wish I had. I moved in with my boyfriend a few days later and I insisted on waiting at work until he could pick me up every night. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.